Yo, what's up, everybody? It's another episode of Real Sun Car Hours. This is episode 105, uh, 105, and we're recording today is Wednesday, October 6th, uh, 2021. Um, yeah, this is uh, your favorite black Marxist uh, political podcast where we talk about news, commentary, current events from a black left perspective. Um, and follow us on Twitter at Sankara Hours um, and to become a patron, patreon.com slash real Sankara Hours. $5 a month get, gets you bonus episodes where we upload uh, bonus content like theory readings um, um, and other stuff like uh, sort of, you know, like ex- sort of more uh, exclusive. Better, better stuff. Spicier takes. You think the takes here are spicy. You should check out the bonus episodes. What did we do last week? Um, oh, oh, yeah, we did uh, our whole ten-year uh, retrospective on Occupy. Yeah, um, yeah, and we did. the way it affected all of our lives. So, yeah, so that's so that's a good example of the bonus episodes. Like we did a ten-year retrospective on Occupy Wall Street because um, it's been yeah ten years since the uh, yeah the uh, first occupation at Zuccotti Park in New York City. So. Um, yeah, follow us at Sankar Hours on Twitter, then www.patreon.com slash real hours to be a patron. Um yeah, let's uh we'll introduce ourselves then uh we'll we'll get into what we're going to be talking about. We're gonna be talking about um uh you know, Facebook shutting down, a strike in Hollywood, um uh, and also uh some local uh news news in my case, uh the ACLU suing uh, the local st- school district for institutional racism so anyway yeah let's introduce ourselves my name is adam hudson follow me at adam hudson five on twitter and this is peter m gun um i'm not giving out my twitter handle anymore this is silly <laughs> um but yeah i mean thank you for sticking with us this whole time you know we've uh slowed down i guess the content schedule you know but that just weeds out the real ones who, you know, actually care and don't and are, you know, still behind us. And we definitely support all of you. Yeah. Uh, but yes. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of interesting things have happened. Um, yeah. So uh, first thing. So at the top of the episode, there was, um, uh, you know, drone strike in Afghanistan in one of our in our one of our previous episodes, we were talking about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. So even though combat troops have been withdrawn, there's st- there are still drone strikes. So, um, yeah, this is uh, August 29th, which is kind of, yeah, right around the same time that the U.S. withdrew. So, um, uh, so the U.S. military called it a righteous strike or drone strike. Um, and it was against a vehicle that I'm reading from the New York Times article on this. Wait, sorry, it's really called a righteous strike. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, whoa, you blew up that wedding, fucking righteous, bro. Yeah, yeah. Pr- pretty much. Uh, yeah, it's so it was. Um, I'm quoting from the New York Times, uh, August 29th, against a vehicle that American officials thought contained an ISIS bomb and posed an imminent threat to troops at Kabul's airport. But a New York Times investigation of video. E- evidence along with interviews with more than a dozen of the driver's co-workers and family members in Kabul 
raises doubts about the U.S. version of events, including whether explosives were present in the vehicle, whether the driver had a connection to ISIS, and whether there was a second explosion after the missile struck the car. Military officials said they did not know the identity of the car's driver when the drone fired, but deem him suspicious because of how they interpreted his activities that day, saying that he possibly visited, possibly visited an ISIS safe house and at one point loaded what they thought could be explosives into the car. Times reporting has identified the driver as Zumari Ahmadi, a longtime worker for a U.S. aid group. The evidence suggests that tr his travels that day actually involved transporting colleagues to and from work. And an analysis of video feeds showed that what the military may have seen was Mr. Amadi and a colleague loading canisters of water into his trunk to bring home to his family. While the U.S. military said the drone strike might have killed three civilians, Times reporting showed that it killed ten, including seven children, in a dense residential block. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I when I read this story... In, Surgical! In the, I, I mean, it just... Uh, you know, precision. This whole, <laughs> precision. This is pretty much the reality of the this this post nine eleven U.S. Per, permanent war machine. Is that it's it's uh you know because during the Bush years it was primarily about uh, large scale military military occupations like in you know most infamous infamously in Iraq, and then Obama put more troops into Afghanistan. And then basically he well, Obama really ratcheted up and institutionalized um, drone strikes and targeted killings. And now we're at the point with um, President Joe Biden that this seems to be pretty much like the future of American warfare, which are drone strikes, um, uh, sending in U.S. special forces like Navy SEALs, mercenaries. And it's just like this uh, so-called uh kinetic warfare so to speak so it's like a global endless war machine that just keeps churning on but because it's done through drone strikes and through these different methods it's uh you know the the u.s public is very much disconnected from the dirty work of its empire overseas and also uh it is definitely in, it's definitely stretching its tentacles into the african continent but that that's just like what what, yeah. what came to mind when i read this story yeah this is yeah i guess this is interesting because yeah the future of i mean the post-formal occupied occupied iraq or afghanistan sorry um at, you know it's, it's no longer like formally occupied by the u.s military it's definitely been something that you know been trying to figure out you know what the direction is and uh i mean the, you know yes of course the U.S. is going to remain just to, like, uh, you know, watch out in case, uh, you know, and just, I guess, periodically blow up some, you know, a guy with carrying water back to his family so they could say that, oh, no, we're still here. We have to fight ISIS, uh, you know, which I get really is just to keep the country destabilized so it doesn't, you know, end up turning towards China or Russia, or any <laughs> other partner that we don't. Any other geopolitical rival in the great game. Um, right. And so I guess this is what we're going to do. They're going to do. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it is, I think I've brought this up before, but, you know, people talk about the militarization of the police, 
but it's also the copification of the military mm. i feel like yeah where it's just like yeah the wars no nobody wants to fight those but we want to do like cop shit but like wear camo while doing it and right that's what this is you know mm-hmm. it's I, the same thing as the myriad police killings um that happen throughout this country every day but uh they they get to push a button and do it you know behind the screen and speaking and of, if they could figure out how to do that here they would so i mean speaking of screens because so much of the the sort of so-called data used to um uh find quote-unquote targets for drone strikes that's all done through like metadata and like you know um quote um signals intelligence which is basically electronic intelligence intelligence through cell phones and stuff like that uh this also connects to um the latest story uh which is facebook um facebook uh well two two things happen to facebook first there is a whistleblower who uh basically spoke out publicly about how facebook is had chose private profit over public safety and then facebook uh and instagram and whatsapp shut down for almost an entire day so um there's an ap article on this that was written two days ago and uh so i'm gonna i'm gonna read a few quotes from it and then we we can talk about it because this is pretty this this is pretty big um so her name is francis hogan and uh so it says uh, a data scientist who was revealed Sunday as a Facebook whistleblower says that whenever there is a conflict between the public good and what benefited the company, the social media giant would choose its own interests. Frances Hogan was identified in a 60 minute interview Sunday as the woman who anonymous, anonymously, anonymously filed complaints with federal law enforcement that the company's own research shows how it magnifies hate and misinformation. Hagen, who worked at Google and Pinterest before joining Facebook in 2019, said she had asked to work in an area of the company that fights misinformation since she lost a friend to online conspiracy theories. Facebook over and over again has has shown it chooses profits over safety, she says. Hagen, who will testify before Congress this week, said she hopes that by coming forward, the government will put regulations in place to govern the company's activities. She said Facebook prematurely turned off safeguards designed to thwart misinformation and rabble-rousing after Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump last year, alleging that contributed to the deadly January 6th invasion of the U.S. Capitol. Uh, post-election, the company dis- dissolved a union o- unit on civic integrity where she had been working, which Hawkins said that, that said was the moment she realized, I don't trust that they're willing to actually invest what needs to be invested to keep Facebook from being dangerous. At issue are algorithms, algorithms that govern what shows up on users' news feeds and how they favor hateful content. Hogan state it, said in a 2018 change to the content flow contributed to more divisiveness and ill will in a network ostent, ostensibly created to bring people closer together. Um, I'm gonna stop right there because yeah, she um, in the whole it um, you know like uh, there was this uh, genocide in Myanmar and. A lot of that was attributed to Facebook. So, and she says in the interview, um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a whole interview with, uh, with sixty minutes, and she had mentioned how, um, uh, on Instagram, that it, uh, 
it was targeting harming young girls psychologically um so like i'm trying to trying to find out yeah they... yeah i mean i don't think you need a study for that one i <laughs> think that one's pretty obvious yeah i think they even i remember a few months ago they even like i think they were just floating it was like instagram for kids and everyone was like what the fuck is this <laughs> like for because you know you have to be 13 to be able to be on the internet unsupervised uh i mean whatever that means but <laughs> that's like the official law you know like if you sign up for something like you have to be th- i mean you know if you're 10 you can just lie i mean that everyone knows that but like uh yeah they're going to like you know develop a new instagram marketed specifically for kids under 13 <laughs> yeah so but... um so some of the data out like um, this is on um from an npr article but like it was showing this Facebook study about UK teens. So like 13.5% of teen girls in the UK um, say their suicidal thoughts became more frequent more frequent after using Instagram. And 17% of teen girls said their eating disorders got worse after using Instagram. And 32% of teen girls said they felt bad about their bodies and Instagram made them feel worse. And so that was... Another thing that Francis Hogan pointed out in that interview. Um, and yeah, like this. And then what happened <laughs> right after uh, she, you know, that, you know, that interview came out, Facebook and WhatsApp were shut down for damn near a day. And that, and apparently what happened was, uh, according to The Verge, is that um, Facebook, the DNS and BGP routing information pointing to a server suddenly disappeared. So it was basically the routing information that connects all of Facebook data centers everywhere in the world. So once that backbone shut down, that's when Facebook shut down for pretty much everybody. And not just Facebook, but also WhatsApp, Oculus, Messenger, Instagram. And WhatsApp like was especially a concern for people, you know, uh, people with the uh, diasporas in the West and, you know, people you know people with family like back home in other countries like you know overseas and so because a lot of whatsapp is used by a lot of people to communicate internationally so i mean now that was it yeah it was just really fucking crazy to see all this shit and also mark zuckerberg's uh net worth net worth took a fucking dive he lost (laughs) he lost like six or seven billion dollars after the facebook crash and he also tried to um, uh, hit back um, at uh, the whistleblower, uh, but you know that didn't really help him. So this seems like some big shit for <laughs> in a bad way yeah. for Facebook, because now there's pressure in Congress on both sides to start regulating Facebook, and there have been a lot of people, particularly like progressives and people on the left, saying that Facebook and these tech companies just have to be broken up. So. Yeah, well, also because the Republicans, because Silicon Valley was just dumb and only bought off one party. Like, <laughs> yep. Right. Uh, which, you know, I guess in California, they thought that's all they needed to do. But now, like, I, you know, even, you know, Fox News will be like, yeah, we need to break. I mean, in their mind, it's because, like, you know, they took away Donald Trump's Twitter account and all that stuff. So it's like, yeah, we need to break up Facebook. But, like, I mean... This, I, you know, I always feel like 
I have a hard time understanding like Facebook going away, but I also have a hard time understanding it continuing to be here in like 20 years because mm-hmm. it just, yeah, it doesn't make sense. And like, there's, there's just no justification for what it does. Like it, like it can't be all these different things at the same time. Like it's, if it's if media, like they say it's a communications company, but also a media company. And so therefore it shouldn't be regulated like either one. Um, and it's like this, no, I, I mean, yeah, there's a, there's just so many things. Um, Facebook, like, yeah, misinformation. I was thinking about how there, there's an old saying I, it's attributed to Mark Twain, but it's like a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. And Mm. like basically Facebook and social media companies are dedicated to that, Mm -hmm. to spreading lies halfway around the world. And there, I mean, yes, it is a little bit funny that Republicans are want to get rid of break up Facebook because it's like, yeah, well, that's who your entire voting base is on sharing stupid q memes with each other um and uh, yeah i mean i don't know how many people have like know anyone who's immersed in like the right-wing media sphere like on facebook but it is yes completely detached from reality yeah it's it's like they like people do just literally say anything and as long as it sounds like something someone who's racist should believe they're like yeah no i heard that on like my coworker literally was like, I heard on Facebook that China's trying to blame Maine Lobster for the pandemic. And I was like, be very interested to see who's saying that. And he's like, Yeah, I, it's probably fake, but I saw it on my newsfeed and it sounded good. So, <laughs> you know, and that's like that's, you know, is this is I mean the American mind, but just people's brains in general. It's it's a very I feel like yeah I feel like I've gotten to a point where like i'm okay with social media um just in my life like it like i can take it or leave it or whatever you know i spend a healthy amount of time on that stuff but it's it's yeah it's like positively demonic and i think there's a i don't know they they either gotta learn you know real lobbying and like level up um in the uh, in the politics game, you know, like oil companies and defense contractors, or like something's gonna happen because uh, yeah, this is it's getting pretty outrageous. And also, like what? Because um, yeah, Facebook has been around. Shit, I, I I mean, I remember when Facebook was only for college students, and then in two thousand seven, it opened up for everybody. Um, and before that, like I was on MySpace in high school, and then when I went to college. And I got off yeah, Facebook. If, yeah, if only my, if only Tom from MySpace had the idea of harvesting <laughs> everyone's data, you know, while having the site, then maybe MySpace would have been around. Still yeah, around. Uh, and and also like, um, what's what's been happening is that, you know, a lot of younger people, and by younger people I mean teenagers, like pretty much like Generation Z, uh, they're not using Facebook as much. Facebook is pretty much for old people, um. So, no, but they are on Instagram. Yeah, well, they're on Instagram, but also TikTok and Snapchat. The users are growing, so that those platforms are becoming more 
tre- um, I guess you could say trendy, like more people are using TikTok and uh, Snapchat. Um, Instagram, yeah, is still around, like it's still popular. But um, yeah, Facebook is, I think, as a just as a platform and as a company, it, it is losing relevance um, domestically. But th- there is this New York Times article said that it, it is growing in countries outside of the United States, but it's yeah. it's losing relevance with young well, people. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, rate of profit tends to fall, guys. So <laughs> you have to expand new into new markets. Um, yeah. And, and yes, or yes, or get younger and younger. And that is like the vampiric predatory nature of capitalism is like well once you tapped out the adult market uh time for the kids you know (laughs) um but yeah it's like all uh, i i still just want to be like guys humanity was uh not so great before uh social media and smartphones but i think but you know i guess from a materialist dialectical perspective now here we are maybe there's like a new way i don't know i feel i just feel like the internet was like it made sense <laughs> as fucked up as it was like before it got colonized by five companies like yeah. as stupid as it was and as much fucked up shit as there was on there like you understood like how it worked and like it was like okay well this is still humans like on the other end of this you know doing whatever like the you know the time i spent on the internet as like a teenager before yeah there's we we only uh spent you know screenshotting screenshotting images of five different websites and sending them to each other um yeah i just it just seems like but it seems like it's fine, like, you know, message boards, the things that the internet is good for, it just seems like we could have all of that without Facebook. And so, you know what? Yeah, break, yeah, just break that shit up because it's, uh, yeah. And I guess, I guess we can transition now into the next story because it mm-hmm. is also about sort of, uh, tech companies. Yep kind of going wild though the relationship it's it's funny because you guys remember sopa remember back in 2012 when oh, like fuck uh, i yeah let's let's oh that's yeah we, we yeah gotta... let's, let's let's get in the way back machine for any zoomer listeners um back in like 2012 there was the stop online piracy act and it mm-hmm. was basically like hollywood going directly at uh silicon valley because they were blaming, you know, Google and everything for, uh, for you know, uh, basically the music industry, like getting halved, um, <laughs> and you know, back then Hollywood and Sil- Silicon Valley was still a new power center, just finding itself, and you know, like all the redditors of the day, all the internet YouTube celebrities, they all mobilized for uh, to stop. The Online Piracy Act uh, to stop the Stop Online Piracy Act, um, and I don't remember. I mean, I think you know everyone. I mean, now everyone's making more money than they ever have before. Uh, part of that's due to streaming, and I yeah. bring up that stuff to say that you know 
now we are in an era where Netflix is somehow simultaneously a tech company and a uh, and a poly- media entertainment company, um, and uh, they and you know streaming has you know taken over Hollywood and it's led to something that is an interesting development and definitely one we're on this show we're very in favor of, which is that. Uh, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees uh, is voted, which basically represents all the crews for movie and TV studios. So basically, like, uh, it's the union for, like, camera operators, uh, production assistants, sound guys. Basically, yeah, all the crew people. Um, it's that union for that. Uh, last weekend... They voted in favor of a strike authorization in a pretty uh, stunning vote. Uh, 90% of eligible voters cast their ballots with 98% in favor of the strike. Uh, So the strike has not happened yet. They're still uh, negotiating with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which, you know, basically represents the studios. Uh, But sort of the contention because you know i know still have some friends like in the film industry and i mean they were posting about which is how i first heard about it um and you know hollywood for all of its problems is a union town like and silicon valley is definitively not um it's you know they're very because unions just per you know, getting the way of innovation, man. That's old ways of thinking. You know, we're trying to think outside the box. Who needs unions, man? <laughs> but uh, the, this is important because, it's, you know, the pan, as everyone recalls, the pandemic sort of accelerated sort of the sw- shift to streaming and has definitely blurred the lines between, like, theatrical productions and stuff for streaming. So when the last contract, I believe... It was uh, settled in 2009 and, you know, streaming hadn't uh, sort of become as hegemonic. But uh, back then, uh, but basically, sorry, Um, you know, back then, basically there was a carve out for like the same, you know, sort of very strict rules about like when are breaks allowed and, you know, how much, how long are you allowed to keep people? Because... It is, it's pretty brutal work, um, like, on a movie set if you're the crew. Like, people work 14-hour days. Uh, I mean, they some of them get paid well. Some of them don't really get paid well. You know, it can be pretty brutal because you're basically on for sort of 10 weeks and then you're off. Um, and that, you know, that's, I mean, it doesn't have to be that way, but that is sort of the work culture in Hollywood. Though it isn't just in L.A. I mean, this is a nationwide strike that's never been authorized in the union's history. But basically, uh, for streaming productions, it was like, oh, well, you know, we don't really need uh, all that, all those strict rules, man, you know. (laughs) But now it's like, wait a second, what the, hold on, hold on a second. Um, You can't just do that. Uh, So, you know, and the pandemic, obviously hit Hollywood pretty hard anyway. And so 
you know, basically they are, uh, they're negotiating for, yeah, higher pay, like better defined breaks, you know, improve, I'm reading from the improved contributions to health and pension plans, which is what a lot of this stuff is. You know, a lot of sort of labor disputes are like that, but also like renegotiating a bigger cut of profits from streaming productions. Cause I remember, I remember the writer's strike, which I think was like 2005, 2006. So I remember there was this God awful South Park episode, you know, and I was still in high school at the time. So I was watching South Park. Um, and you know, and it was about like the writer's strike was, uh, for, you know, basically new media, as they called it, on the on the internet and stuff. Um, and they made fun of the idea that that's something people would strike over back then. But now it's like, yeah, this how everyone watches everything. Mm-hmm. People are upset that like movies get exclusive theatrical runs, because, you know. And even for me, I'm like, ah. Eh, you know, do I even really want to, like, go to the theater to see something I'm not that super excited about? Or do I just want to torrent it? Um, and so, but, you know, which is to say that, like, this is this is definitely a very important sort of uh, situation, you know, in the future of the entertainment industry. And it's inspiring to see just, like, a... Uh, just like the you know sort of an overwhelming show of solidarity because you know labor i mean labor agitation is definitely up like like i think the statistics are pretty clear as as it should be you know in general and also just because of the material conditions like there's going to be more strikes and you know more work stoppages and uh if you, I think it's IA underscore stories is the uh, Instagram page where, like, you know, people who work on movie sets are basically sharing their reality so you can have a chance to understand, uh, you know, what it's like because <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty rough. And uh, yeah, I mean, just overwhelming support, uh, you know, if, if the strike does happen, um, you know, we'll obviously yeah uh, yeah have ways to show solidarity and stuff but it's important i'm glad because you know so much of like the new developments in history it's like yeah you're just supposed to take that but in this case it's like no like we literally can't allow ourselves to take it because you know we're at the end of our rope at this point and that's you know that's the uh material uh contradictions of yeah so like the iatses that stands for international alliance of theatrical stage employees and yeah 90 percent of their eligible eligible members uh voted um voted in like nearly 99 percent voted in favor uh and this is basically yeah 150 150,000 crew members in the united states and canada so that's camera operators cinematographers script coordinators prop makers set builders editors makeup artists and other basically basically all the people who work behind the scenes to uh make movies and tv possible um you know they're not the people who are in front of the camera there's it's a whole entire crew set behind the camera to make you know movies and tv and um yeah and like so 
I, I was just reading this thing in The Verge, and this, this shit just stuck, stuck out to me. Um, the title of it is, A Major Hollywood Union Threatens to Strike Over Streaming Pay. And they're talking about, like, yeah, the uh, major sticking point has been new media or, you know, streaming pr- productions like Netflix and uh, 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 Amazon, Apple. And they receive greater flexibility on pay and benefits under the existing contract based on the idea that they may have to pay less to get the growing industry off the ground. Uh, which, eek, damn. So it's like basically, yeah, they they have some flexibility to pay uh, behind-the-scenes workers lower pay to, like, get the... But, I mean, like, fucking, I mean, Amazon, like... Oh God! Like <laughs> yeah. Well, well, they you, you could get away with that, you know. Yeah, back in two thousand nine, two, because two thousand thirteen or whatever. But it's right. like the amount of shit Netflix oh, turns out right. and yeah. Amazon, and you know, on some level, like yeah, this the new giant content economy. They were probably like, yeah, it only it's actually the only viable economic model is like if uh, there's basically no unions and everyone works 16 hour right. days because we got to get the content out. It's like yeah. people can have their shows and the people who make them can, you know, be treated. Humanely. I mean, because like, yeah, because Netflix is worth like over 270 billion dollars. I remember when Netflix, I mean, just to take it back even further, when Netflix was just a was just delivering DVD movies to your home. It basically, yeah, oh, yes. it was comp- it competed against Blockbuster. We had to go to Blockbuster and rent and then return it. Whereas Netflix, you, you could have a DVD mailed to you and then mail it back and rent. And now it's Netflix has gone far beyond that. Now it's just like another streaming service, and it's yeah, oh yeah, and it's its own studio. I mean, it's as powerful yeah. as any. Uh, of the major of the five major Hollywood studios at this mm-hmm. point, yeah, I mean, yeah, and because it, uh, and it's and it's prompted the streaming wars with all the other major studios, and you know, that's I mean that is you know sort of the direction things are going, and I mean, and it's you know, it's international as well because like if you go out, look on Netflix, like some of their the some of the shows that stream pretty well are like you know shot overseas, like for example. Um, I mean, Peter, you were telling me this before we started recording. You you watched a Squid Game, and that's based in Korea, South Korea. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's an there's another yeah. show I watched as a couple seasons called Elite. It's about like, you know, uh, this this uh like rich private high school in Spain, and like all the actors are you know Spanish. These are Spanish actors. So like, if you go on Netflix, there's a lot of shows that are based in other countries. So Netflix has like an international reach in terms of like you know it's the stuff it it creates and produces so yeah i mean like (laughs) uh and it it seems to have like you know um given some actors like you probably never heard of like uh, like a a chance and now so yeah like they they definitely have way more fucking money than they did like you know when they were just literally mailing dvds to your mailbox when you didn't want to go to uh, blockbuster and yes this is definitely revealing our age as elder millennials but i mean it's it's just like yeah like i that's what that struck out to me like oh we need to get the industry off the ground by paying you less I was like well no like you're not at that point anymore no no not at all i mean yeah at this point everything is 
like released you know in theaters and on hbo max or whatever (laughs) and like yeah i mean these are you know i have plenty of complaints about you know the stuff that hollywood puts out but like it like it is every like major studio movie is just an incredible feat of human organization and that that is true and that is like entirely like the production Mm -hmm. crew and those people like deserve um you know way more credit than they get because they're the ones who make the movie actually happen um and so i mean it's it should i mean it obviously goes without saying that like they deserve you know sane production schedules and breaks and you know all this stuff and like yeah it's just uh you know i support goes out to them and you know if it gets to a point that like there is a strike and it's like you know don't fucking scab don't cross Mm -hmm. the line and stream all your idiot shows or whatever or whatever the request is to show solidarity you know like that's important yeah so um so to transition um like i was saying earlier to some more local news so um I I live in uh, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, California, which is in the East Bay area, and um, this is some local news, but it actually I think it really has some regional and national uh, implications. So um, I think it'd be good to talk about it on, on this podcast because I'm sure as I talk about it, um, anybody who either works in education or has or who has kids or you know all of us who are products of public schools. Um, this this might seem somewhat familiar. Um, I'm going to read from a press release from the ACLU. And last month, uh, the ACLU sued Pittsburgh Unified School District basically for institutional racism. Um, I'm going to read from the ACLU's press release. Uh, so it says, um, The state of California and Pittsburgh Unified School District have maintained a separate, unequal, and illegal educational system where black students, children of color with disabilities, and English learners have been segregated in substandard learning environments, excluded from classrooms altogether through the use of unwarranted suspensions and expulsions, and as a result denied their constitutional right to a public education. Today, two students, two parents of former students, and a current teacher filed a claim in Contra Costa County Superior Court against the State Board of Education, State Superintendent of Public Instruction Tony Thurmond, the State of California, and Pittsburgh Unified School District. The complaint alleges the state and district's unlawful practices harmed thousands of its most marginalized students, primarily students of color. The plaintiffs are represented by the ACLU of Northern California Foundation, the ACLU of Southern California Foundation, and Disability Rights Education and Defense. Pittsburgh Unified has one of the worst records in the state when it comes to fulfilling its legal obligation to provide supportive services for disabled students and English learners that allow them to thrive in general education classrooms, including learning how to read and write, said Mohar Shah, a staff attorney with the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund. We are calling for a systematic reform to to address pervasive discrimination against children whose constitutional rights to a basic education are being violated. More than 11,000 students attend school districts and most of them are children of color. Our complaint asserts that students of color and English learners are routinely and disproportionately identified 
as having disabilities then pushed into segregated classrooms where no worthwhile instruction occurs. Um, Plaintiff Mark S. is a seven-year-old Latino student who qualifies for special education because he has autism. His teacher spent his class time showing him Disney movies with no educational value and having him do arts and crafts. He is now in third grade but is still reading and writing beneath kindergarten level. Although the district was put on notice years ago about the deficiencies, deficiencies in his special education programs by its own consultant, school officials have failed to follow any other recommendations in any meaningful way. Um, uh, Linnea Nelson, a senior staff attorney for the Racial and Economic Justice Program at the ACLU of Northern, Northern California, said Pittsburgh school officials subject black students and children with disabilities to excessively harsh dis discipline. There is disturbing data to back this up, Nelson said. In uh, 2017 to 2018, students with, with disabilities were three times more likely than their peers to be suspended, and more than one-third one of bl all black students with disabilities were suspended or expelled. Plaintiff Jessica Black is a Pittsburgh resident whose daughter attended district schools. When Miss Black's daughter was 11 years old, she was forcibly strapped to a gurney and transported to a psychiatric hospital. Black said school staff called the police after her daughter walked out of her class in frustration. I don't want any other student to have to endure the racist and unfair treat treatment that my daughter went through. Our complaint further seeks to hold state educational officials accountable for allow allowing these long-standing violations to go unchecked. Um, yeah, this is uh, this is pretty fucking big because this has been the talk of the town recently. Um, this is what the superintendent said. So this is District Superintendent Janet Sch Janet Schultz. She called the lawsuit disappointing. Um, she said it doesn't. She said the information is misleading and doesn't consider the progress a district has made in closing achievement gaps. Uh, this is this is this is her statement. It was put in Ed Source. Uh, we will not let this lawsuit distract us, distract from the significant efforts of our district and staff to identify and address disparities. As attorneys attend to this situation, I am confident that the facts will set straight the many misleading comments in the ACLU statement, and I am equally confident that the dedicated professionals in our district will not let this deter them from focusing on the needs of our students, who are every day at the heart of our work. And to kind of uh, give you some data so Pittsburgh Unified has 11,015 students. Um, this is in the East Bay, East uh, East San Francisco Bay Area, um, San Francisco East Bay Area. I mean, uh, so 95% of the students are non-white, and when it comes to the demographics of the school district, uh, most students are Latino. And by the way, Latino is not a racial category even though it kind of gets racialized in the u.s but it's more of like a pan-ethnic category but in the case of latino in, in here we're we're talking about mostly mexican and mexicans and central americans ma many of whom uh like i i don't think would be classified as white in terms of race so and then so mexican central americans and uh uh, uh black people um and then also Filipinos and other like Pacific Islanders. So 95% of the students in the district are non-white. And 77% are low income. Uh, and just over 11% are enrolled in special education. So anyway, that's a mouthful. But um, 
this was like the, uh, this was some big fucking news. It was a talk of the town, and like, um, so full disclosure, I uh, am a committee member of the ethnic studies committee in this in in this town, and uh, so I just want to say for the record, I'm speaking only for myself on an individual level. Uh, I'm not speaking for the committee, just to clarify. Um, but you know, I th- I think like uh, just somebody who lives and grew up in Pittsburgh, like this is uh, a lot of this is not surprising, um, and that's how a lot of people here feel um, in the community, in the city, and throughout this school district. Um, so, but I've told other people this, and like I've heard similar stories in other school districts um, throughout the state. Um, so some people are seeing like this lawsuit might spark some change, uh, some much needed progressive change in the K through 12 school system. Um, so, uh, and I recently wrote an article for truth out explaining my involvement in the fight for ethnic studies, uh, um, you know, basically to challenge the whitewashing of, uh, education curriculum. And, uh, I, I, I see like the, the, these two issues that are interconnected, especially as like there's all these right wing efforts to ban so-called critical race theory. I mean, it's just like shows how much this, th- you know, uh, this state and this country's K through 12 system just completely fails, uh, you know, non-white yeah. students, especially working class non-white students. <laughs> yeah, I was describing that stuff almost gave me flashbacks to when we, you know, and this also surreptitious plug for the Patreon, uh, when we were reading uh, Huey Newton's Revolutionary Mm -hmm. Suicide, and he was talking about his experience, like, in Oakland Unified School District or whatever, and basically just, you know, the fundamentally hostile response he got from teachers and school administration officials and I mean, it certainly tracks with sort of my experience in growing up in urban public schools. It seems, you know, really that not much changes in that Mm -hmm. regard. And, you know, part of it is definitely funding. But, uh, you know, it's some sometimes it's like, yeah, the poor districts are never going to have enough money because of the way you know, school funding is allocated in this country, uh, you know, based on property taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some places, I think, do sort of distribute it equally statewide, but even then it depends on, you know, how rich the state is, and some states are poorer than others. But, you know, just the general practice of funding schools by property taxes is just inherent, inherently, you know, in the ways in which... Uh, I mean, obviously, redlining, et cetera, et cetera, spatial segregation and poverty and the way they're related will just always sort of leave, uh, you know, school children of color, black and brown kids uh, with uh, at disadvantages. But then it is also I mean, this is like I think there was, yeah, some not very good discourse about being anti-school, but. People do seem to forget that, like, yeah, there is kind of an oppressive element to the public school system, and, like, it does, and the reason, like, uh, you know, the American bourgeoisie were willing to finance public school, like, in the first place was that it was supposed to teach kids to be obedient Mm -hmm. workers, and, like, 
I mean, down to the bell itself. Like, if they made, you know, if they had designed it now, they would make kids clock in. I guarantee you that. Um, I mean, I guess you have to sign in if you're late or whatever. But uh, yeah, it, and just I don't. I mean, teachers. I'm, you know, I know. Like, I'm not anti-teacher or whatever. But it's like, yeah, there's some of them where it's like, God, they really you know, don't like black kids, yeah. it seems, or any black kid that, like, talks back at all, and, like, I've definitely seen just, like, the ways in which, yeah, it's just the, you know, automatic response is criminalization. I, that is, the like, the message. I mean, there. that's why, you know, I think one of the really important things that came out of all the George Floyd protests was, like, the movement to get cops out of yeah. schools. Um, because, like, that is the message you're sending these kids, and it's just, like, I, you know, people made the point, like, you know, forever and ever during the 90s, and it's just, like, people just don't believe, or they just forgot or stopped caring, but it's, like, yeah, like, these problems, if you neglect kids now, like, the social problems come back later mm-hmm. on. Like, it isn't, like, you just forget about it. Yeah. So, you know, I... I do have, is it, so is it suing like on behalf of the parents? Yeah, so suing, so the ACLU, the ACLU lawsuit is on behalf of uh, two students, parents of two former students and a current teacher, I believe, like the teacher, I believe, uh, is kind of like an anonymous whistleblower, if, if I recall correctly, but um, I, you know, I've, I've had, you know, we've been having... Uh, among us in the community like we've been having conversation about this and like i mean the the mood is that um no one's surprised um some say this is like long overdue change um and pittsburgh like actually let me i'll I'll give you guys a little bit of a history of uh pittsburgh because it's it's interesting so like like i said it's um san francisco bay area so uh, there's San Francisco, the city, then across the bridge is Oakland, and then you go further east, um, there's the Bay and there's the Delta, and Pittsburgh is on the Delta, and as you go further east from Pittsburgh, you, you go into, like, basically Stockton and then Central Valley, so, uh, Pittsburgh, um, like, it's, it's a multi-ethnic city, working class, and the history of the town it was first founded as a coal mining settlement in the 1800s. Then it switched in the early 20th century with the steel mill. Uh, it basically shifted to like basically a steel town. Um, and that's pretty much, it's a working class blue collar city. And the power structure here, um, there's always been like a lot of Italians who who've lived here going back like, probably to like the late 1800s and um they kind of run things here in the city a little, little bit um you know look up the Sino company they're a real estate construction company they they uh <laughs> it's a lot of dirty shit they've been involved in but um it's kind of like a old boys network in terms of who runs things around here um and so you know that's that's kind of how the the city how the city is, but this lawsuit, I think it's, um, yeah, it, it's, it struck a nerve among people. Um, 
in a way that like I think most people are pretty sympathetic with it. Although there's some people who are like there's some just well connected like uh <laughs> people here who are, you know, the uh chamber of commerce, police and sort of conservative types who are like oh, this is a, this is a really an issue, blah blah blah. So, you know, there there's there's some there's there, it's not an issue for them because their kids are in cabins. Right, exactly. Yeah, like so. So that so uh, that's that's the tension here politically. Like there's kind of like a old boys network here, so to speak, who who run things. But um, you know, this lawsuit, yeah, it really struck a nerve. And I th- and the reason I bring it up is because I mean, even what you said, Peter, just backs this up. Like this this happens across the country. So like I think you know there might be similar lawsuits. In other school districts across the state and uh um yeah somebody you know who who went to the school district and then went to stanford like you know it was um uh yeah like there was definitely like i mean the message was sent that uh especially if you were a black male there was you were a problem um that i i i'll you know i i feel fine saying that publicly like i i remember that message being sent uh earlier on as a kid in the school district and seeing this lawsuit's like oh okay it seems like nothing has really changed um and especially like you know what was was also fucked up is like putting students who uh you know if english is like their second language putting them in a special ed and like the case of like you know a student who was they made him watch disney movies and didn't teach him at all (laughs) like that's just uh yeah complete fucking failure and i think the uh, the main reason why this lawsuit was filed was like the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back is that there was a consultant sent to monitor pittsburgh and and give uh recommendations the district never did that and then hence the lawsuit but again like this is you know it's not just this school district i've heard similar stories of other in other school districts just especially you know when it comes to treatment of black and brown students like this seems to be you know uh pretty normal but hopefully um it would spark some much needed change here locally at least yeah i mean even my high school which was sort of like a success story among like inner urban public schools whatever like like the pro like the program that's teachers are great but the building is literally falling apart Mm. now um and like the the roof would leak when I was there, so it's yeah. I mean, it's just ah. I mean, we know what America's priorities were, and like instead of you know actually addressing this, uh, Democrats like for the past twenty five years, just, you know, ran around uh, getting themselves rich by promoting charter schools. I mean, Republicans too, and so you know, <laughs> that's like. Yeah, it's like no shit. Oh wow, charter school. I mean, New Orleans kind of case outstanding. Like charter schools aren't going to replace the existing public infrastructure, and they get to be success stories because they can pawn off all the quote unquote problem kids back on public schools. Uh, so it you know, and that's the that was the solution that was thrown around uh, nationally. Is oh well, yeah, something charter schools, and then like america's criminally underfunded public school system uh will fix itself somehow yeah you know? um actually uh to 
this this will be a good transition to uh well we're getting close to the end but uh i wanted to actually mention something um just especially for like the record on on this podcast because it's something i'm writing about so um the online left there's been this massive debate about um land I don't know how massive oh, mass- it is, Well, it was but... kind of blew up my fucking feed, so. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I saw it too. And I, and I was, I mean, the thing I, you know, the charitable understanding is that you get a lot of new converts who don't know what they're talking about, but they're just, but they also don't know that they don't know what they're talking <laughs> about. And so, yeah. you know, and it's the internet. And so, you know, this is like the dirtbag left, like the, you know, the ones that were like, oh. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that that kind of like, uh, class, you know, out and proud class reductionist, or yeah, whatever, right? Those yeah, things. I think this is like goes even deeper than class reductionism. So, but, yeah, yeah, no. but basically, so so the issue here is that okay, there was this debate between Professor Flowers and Vosh, Vosh of all fucking Wait, people. Uh, yeah, the guy who thinks child porn. Should yeah, be that guy. Yeah. So, um, anyway. Uh, there was like a debate between them, not just on Twitter, but like on YouTube, like the sort of bread tube sphere of like the online left about um, the issue was basically um, black nationalism, decolonization and land back. And um, so Professor Flowers, like uh, t- um, she herself, um, she said this on Cole James Cash's uh, show that she's she's black but she's mixed race so she's half black half Chinese so she clarified her lineage but she she was basically defending um she she herself does not classify herself as a black nationalist or black separatist but what she was explaining was like why people believe in black nationalism and black separatism and she was basically I think I think she was more on the side of like just decolonization and like that 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 it's been causing like a debate on the left, like uh, on the online left for like, uh, I don't know, a couple days or so, at least a week, I think. And, um, there's like two camps. So there's a side of like the capital L left who support decolonization and basically, basically self-determination for colonized people. So black and indigenous peoples. And then there's one segment of the left that, uh, views, um, land back as reactionary. And basically like they're the type of, people on the left who view any sort of nationalism in general as reactionary and so they they have a knee-jerk reaction against well yeah i mean yeah there well yeah there's i guess there's probably two kinds of people because there's the anarchist Mm -hmm. types who are just like yeah no i just hate all nations in general uh whatever (laughs) it doesn't matter you know that's that's why i'm against uh new africa or whatever and but then there is also like this divides the working class to talk about you know colonial questions and uh, and uh, you know we should did not i actually no well we are gonna spend time on this bullshit, yeah well right? so so um this will tee up actually our bonus a uh, bonus episode for a bonus for a bonus episode we can dig deeper in this but i i just wanted to put, put this out for the record because um i put out this term called colonial left and i started saying this i look back around january 2021 um and one of the first times I said it, we we had a we were interviewed on Champagne Sharks, and this is when I said the term colonial left, and then it kind of caught on with a few people. And then when I chimed in on Twitter about like the this current debate, I called the people who were against land back 
and self-determination, the colonial left. And a lot of people liked it because because uh, previously a lot of people call like the anti-land back left the settler left. But I said like I just called them the colonial left and a lot of people liked it. So I want to clarify for the record what I mean by that term because it seems to some people like it and, so, and even one person suggested that I write about it just for the record. Because especially like um, – you know, like the the this is this is a black you know uh, Marxist radical podcast, and one thing that happens often with black radical history is that our narratives get distorted. So that's why I wanted to like clarify this for the record, because um, basically, uh, what I would define as uh, the colonial left or a colonial leftist. Let's let's first define the term left, capital L left. So I would say the left. Um, like traditionally, like the strictest definition, the definition I use, I, I go by because it's the only definition that I think is acceptable, is basically anybody who is anti-capitalist, fundamentally. Um, so socialist, anarchist, Trotskyist, communist, any kind of you know, there's different kinds of ideologies and philosophies and stuff like that. So and then I'll I I'll throw in social democrat just to kind of be charitable. Um, they're sort of like left-ish, but they're they're of like the left, I'd say. I mean, at least definitely in the context of the United States, the Social Democrats are on the left. So basically, um, it's any kind of leftist of this variety who doesn't take issues like settler colonialism, racism, white supremacy uh, seriously. Like they see, like their focus is on capitalism and they, they don't see how settler colonialism and white supremacy are intertwined with capitalism and they view discussions of, of those issues as like side issues they're not they're not important they divide the working class um etc etc right and on top of uh dismissing those issues they're incredibly dismissive of uh nationalism decolonization and self-determination for colonized people in this case specifically black and indigenous peoples so they come from a perspective which goes back a while this this debate is kind of old uh yeah i mean you could argue that that's it's endemic to the left itself depending (laughs) on how you term when the left like came into existence right but if it's in the french revolution it's uh yeah endemic to the left. right right yeah so that's why i want to like i'm i'm saying the word colonial left and this this is why i'm just calling because to me it, it clarifies what the actual line in the sand in terms of like the beliefs because like i would say the colonial left is a type of leftist who again they don't take issues like settler colonialism and white supremacy seriously they see them as side issues and if you bring them up they take it as a distraction um, but also, they view any form of nationalism, decolonization, or self-determination as reactionary. So they view any form of nationalism as reactionary, and they have a just a knee-jerk reaction against any form of nationalism, decolonization, and self-determination for colonized people, particularly Black and Indigenous peoples. And so, and now, like, there's like a new iteration. Like, there's some like patriot American socialist or something like that where their 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 yeah their idea is that you can somehow reclaim american patriotic iconography for revolutionary purposes which i find interesting because like they never come up with a revolutionary american identity that 
resolves the contradictions of slavery and settler colonialism in the Americas. They just dismiss those issues, kind of like people on the right who uh, are protesting the teaching of, a, of of race in American history in schools. Um, so basically, like, yeah, I, I, I would say in, um, you know, I, I'm familiar with these types. And, and the reason why I can't with a term is like, I, I just want to say something that like, <laughs> it's just like you find this attitude a lot on the left. And I think like what, because um, Peter, you were saying something about new converts. One thing that became clear in, that Professor Flowers said, she, she said that like, oh, she thought like people on the left would be automatically on board with decolonization and like ah, ah. rude awakening <laughs> you know this is, this is uh, for people like us like for people like you and i peter like it's not surprising at all because we've we've been around these types for a while but um i so that that's basically what i mean when i say colonial left is that any type of leftist who basically one uh thinks settler colonialism settler colonialism and white supremacy are side issues or they are or they're irrelevant and they view any form of nationalism as reactionary and have a knee-jerk reaction against decolonization nationalism and self-determination for black and indigenous peoples and like i uh i'll clarify i mean in terms of how i identify in terms of uh uh, uh lineage because uh um some of this has been brought up like particularly you know um the whole like adolf stuff which i don't want to get into but basically like i mean these days but I, I in terms of lineage how i clarified who i am uh i'm non-mixed african-american what i mean by african-american i'm saying it as an ethnic term rather than just you know race because obviously by race i'm black but ethnicity in terms of how you define ethnicity common ancestry shared history culture etc etc um african-american so basically descendant of enslaved africans brought to the united states who created their own culture and way of life here so um so so like that's just that's you know who i am and um even black america uh uh black america itself is actually more diverse than people think and it's diversifying more it's like there's more mixed race people and also there's more black people from immigrant backgrounds so like jamaicans haitians people from the caribbean africa so black america i think when people say black american they're i think they're just thinking of somebody like myself but that's not quite the case like i i black america as a as a nation of people it's you know there's 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 a little more diversity than than people uh people believe so i wanted to kind of clarify that but yeah colonial leftists they hate it when you bring up issues like race and colonized settler colonialism and they they just view nationalism and decolonization as as reactionary and it was i had never seen these types who like these sort of patriot american socialists or something like that or american patriotic socialists who like are socialist but are waving the american flag <laughs> they 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 want they want a socialism that's still nationalist it's like a What's the national socialism, if you will? <laughs> yeah, I'm. Oh, we kid, we kid, yeah. folks. Um, but but uh, yeah, non, you know, that is how a lot of that shit starts. Honestly. Yeah, and actually, so the YouTube channel Non Compete, um, he had a pretty good video on this, and I'm gonna put in the show notes because he was talking about like how going to Vietnam like made him a, an anti patriot, and his uh luna oi who um 
she's all over Twitter and she has a YouTube channel. She's she's been she's been doing a good job of like beating back some of this propaganda because she's coming from a Vietnamese communist left perspective. And so like she had she had a video explaining what nationalism is and like I like how she did it from, you know, a Vietnamese left perspective, like somebody actually in Vietnam. So uh um yeah, it just feels like <laughs> Like you're saying, Peter, like some people are probably like new converts. So explaining this stuff, I think, um, is really important. Yeah. Well. Well. Yes. I'll. I'll take. I'll drink the brain poison next week. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's worth to get some of this stuff on above board. Or yeah. Whatever. To everyone. But it's you know, a lot of it is just people wanting easy way out, easy ways out. Um, they think if they could just. Yeah, get, like, the flag-fucking energy, but, like, for the left, like, dude, we'd be unstoppable. And it's like, well, it's a reason, like, people have tried it before. The reason, there's there's a reason it hasn't worked yet, yeah. so. We'll get into, we'll get into stuff like that next week. We should probably sign yeah, out. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, and then, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm writing an article, I'm writing a blog post about the term colonial left and situating it in... Because there's some history behind, like, you know, these sorts of political disagreements. So these, this debate's not new, so it helps to, you know, contextualize it because there's lessons to learn from history. But, yeah, we'll we'll do a more deeper dive into this for a bonus episode, which is all the more reason why you should be a subscriber. So, yeah, patreon.com slash hours, $5 a month gets you bonus episodes. And also, like, if you pay anywhere between a dollar to $4 a month, um... That helps keep the podcast afloat, um, but you won't get bonus episodes. And if you want to make like just a donation to the podcast, uh, PayPal.me slash RealSunCarHours. But yeah, if you want, if you know, if if you're interested in this conversation about the colonial le- colonial left and the sort of intellectual political history behind these kinds of debates, yeah, definitely be a subscriber because we'll be we'll be diving into that for our next bonus episode. So yeah, let's sign out. Uh, keep the faith. Stay dangerous. Peace.